Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning. My name is Chad Ragsdale. I teach at Ozark Christian College. And uh, also, my family and I have been blessed to call Christ Church our home for many years. And I'm excited to, uh, to be here this morning. Um, we're going to be studying Matthew chapter 25 today. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles or access your devices to that, Matthew 25. It's a rather long text. It's not going to be up on the screen. Um, so if it'd help you to follow along, that'd be good. I don't have to tell you that we live in very divided times. We live in very divided times. There's almost nothing, it seems like, that we can agree on. Almost any idea or almost any opinion that you have, there's almost guaranteed to be someone who will disagree. You could go so far as to say, you know what, I kind of feel like the earth is round and somebody's going to raise their hand and say, I don't know, I saw that YouTube video, I don't know, I got some questions. We live in very divided times. We don't want to agree on anything, but I think there is at least one thing that virtually all of us can agree on, and it's this, we hate to wait. We hate waiting. I heard someone say one time that waiting feels like death. And uh, there are times when I think he's right. I have two junior high kids at home. I'd like to think that I'm an expert on waiting. Uh, There's always the debate in the Ragsdale household, just how long is five minutes exactly? Um, Waiting makes us feel anxious. Waiting makes us feel agitated. Waiting may even start a fight, maybe even this morning. Waiting makes us uh, antsy agitated. Uh, We hate waiting. Some of you feel personally attacked if you're made to wait. You know who you are. You go into a restaurant and you take mental inventory of every family and individual that came in after you. And when you sit down, hey, they came in five minutes after us. They're already getting their food. We haven't even ordered yet the nerve. See if we come back here again. Waiting. Waiting makes us agitated. And because of our lack of patience, waiting may even put a stress on our relationships with each other. And if we're completely honest this morning, which I hope we are, if we're completely honest, waiting also puts a strain at times on our relationship with our God. Because trusting in God doesn't come without waiting. God tends to do this annoying thing where he operates according to his schedule and not mine. Following Jesus doesn't come without experiencing some growth and patience. It is, after all, one of the fruit of the Spirit. And waiting for Jesus, this is the theme of our passage today. Matthew 25 is a chapter with three parables in it. Some debate whether or not the third is actually a parable. But three teachings, all of which kind of revolve around this idea of waiting for Jesus. Now, all throughout Matthew's gospel, we're we're nearing the end of Matthew's gospel by chapter 25. All throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus uh, has been talking about his kingdom. Fifty-five times the word kingdom is used in the gospel of Matthew. Jesus says to repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Uh, he, He tells us when we pray, to pray Uh, Your kingdom come, your will be done. He tells us to seek first the kingdom 
and his righteousness. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So many of the parables that Jesus gives in this gospel are parables about what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom is always on Jesus' lips in Matthew. Jesus looks at the state of the world, and he announces, he proclaims, that God is doing something in your midst, that God's reign is breaking out. But it might not necessarily look the way that you're expecting. Now, there's an important element of this kingdom that we need to pay attention to. This kingdom is an already but not yet type of kingdom. In the death, in the burial, and in the resurrection of Jesus, the, re- the kingdom of heaven has arrived. When Jesus defeated death and sin, nothing can ever be the same ever again. But we still find ourselves waiting. Waiting for things to be completely and finally made right. Paul puts it this way when he writes the book of Romans. He says that we've all been adopted into God's family. We've all been adopted as sons and daughters of the king, but yet we still wait for the final consummation of our adoption. He says in in Romans chapter 8, verse 24, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. There's that word. We wait. The kingdom of heaven requires us to learn to wait patiently. Towards the end of Matthew's gospel, then, Jesus anticipates Paul, and he gives us this series of parables with the message of learning how to wait. So let's look at this first parable. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all came, became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, in the, in the chapter that immediately precedes this one, in Matthew chapter 24... Jesus gives a, a very similar teaching. He says, now I'm going to be coming back. I'm going, to be com- I'm, I'm going to come back, but no one knows the day and no one knows the hour. It's going to be a bit like a thief in the middle of the night. And so he says in Matthew 24, he says, therefore keep watch because you don't know on what day the Lord will come. And this parable has a very similar message to that. Now wedding banquets, some of you may know this, but wedding banquets in the first century were very extravagant affairs. Our weddings may be over the top today, but they've really got nothing on these ancient wedding feasts. What would happen is, and this was kind of the tradition, uh, the groom would come, usually in the evening, but the groom would come to the bride's home, 
And as he was on his way, the bridesmaids would go out and meet him and escort him to his bride. And then together, as a wedding party, they would leave the bride's home and they would triumphantly march, process their way through town to the groom's home, where they would then celebrate for seven days, for a week. That's a lot of chicken dances. Um, They would have this week-long party, and to be involved in a wedding was a very, it was a privilege to be involved, to be invited to this wedding banquet. Now, as Jesus tells this story, the groom, in this case, is late in arriving, and we're not really told why. But five of the bridesmaids are prepared for this delay. They brought extra oil. Five are not. Matter of fact, the five foolish bridesmaids were were told they didn't take any oil with them whatsoever, which implies that they weren't expecting any sort of delay at all. They were expecting that the groom would come immediately. And so they were left unprepared. And when the groom finally does come, they try to borrow oil to no avail. And as a result, they find themselves locked out of the wedding celebration. Now, all of Jesus' parables in in the Gospels have, generally speaking, there's some sort of shocking twist or unforeseen twist in Jesus' parables. And what would have been shocking about this particular parable, even to Jesus' original audience, would have been this. My goodness, that seems harsh, doesn't it? It seems harsh to lock the door To say, I don't even know you, that, I don't know, seems a little bit harsh. But I think the point that Jesus is making is very clear. You see, because there's some things that you just cannot borrow from other people. And one of the things that you can't borrow is your preparation for my arrival. It leaves us with the question then, Well, what does it mean to be prepared? I don't want to be like these five foolish bridesmaids. I want to be wise. What does it really mean to be prepared? Now, there have been a lot of different ideas about this parable and what does the oil represent in this parable. Maybe it represents the Bible. Maybe it represents the Holy Spirit. And I think all those theories are fine in that they're all probably wrong. But um, I I think those theories just kind of miss the point because really the point is simply this. Preparation requires a mindset of perseverance. It requires a mindset of perseverance. The difference between the five wise and the five, five foolish bridesmaids was the difference in a mindset. The five wise bridesmaids had a mindset that said, we're ready for as long as it takes. We know that the groom will come. We don't know when. And so we will be ready even if he is delayed. And kingdom people have that kind of mindset, a mindset very much out of place in this world, but a mindset that says, I trust in Jesus enough to remain patient and to remain committed, to persevere even when things are difficult. And there's nothing, there's nothing passive about this kind of preparation. I like this verse, it's going to be up on the screen, from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Hebrews, a a, a book in the New Testament, also written to a group of Christians who were struggling to persevere in their faith. They were struggling in the waiting. 
And so Hebrews tells them in verse 1 of chapter 2, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. Now, this word drift away, it's a nautical word. It's a word that was applied to, to ships who had become loose from their moorings and just kind of drifted gradually out to sea. And so Hebrews' message is, you need to be mindful of your faith. You must pay extra careful attention because if you don't, the danger is that over time, you just start to drift. Slowly but surely, over time, you drift away. You lose sight of what's really true. You lose sight of the kingdom and you end up finding yourself lost. It's about a mindset that says, I trust Jesus enough that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what happens in this world, I will trust in his promises and remain committed to his return. This leads to the second parable. The second parable is a little bit more specific. It tells us a little bit more specifically about how to be prepared. And so Jesus says this, again, um, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another he gave two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also... The one with two bags of gold gained two more, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold, and see, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold, and see, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold, he came, and he said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him, give it to the one who has 10 bags, for whoever will be given, whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, one of the worst things about waiting, I think, is the boredom. Sometimes I wonder, what did we do with ourselves before the invention of the smartphone? How did we stand in line for anything? How did we wait in the doctor's office without something to scroll through on our phone? We hate the boredom involved in waiting. Well, in this parable, Jesus actually says, in your waiting, I've got stuff for you to do. I've got a job for you to do, even in your waiting. He says this wealthy man, he leaves home. 
He's going on a trip. And when he goes on this trip, he entrusts all of his wealth to three servants uh, to invest while he's away. Now, my version, the version that I just read, uses the phrase bags of gold. You may have heard this parable as the parable of the talents. Have you ever heard that phrase before, the parable of the talents? Um, It it comes from a Greek word, talent. um, And the reason that this version changed it to bags of gold is because we're not really sure how much a talent was worth. There's some debate about that. Some people say that a talent was worth as much as 15 years' wages for the average laborer. This was a huge amount of money, a talent. So even even the servant who was left with just one talent, this servant would have been left with the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars by his master. This was no small thing. So the master, he leaves his wealth in the care of his servants— Uh, in order for them to invest. Now, the key word here, though, that I want to focus on is not the word talent. The key word I want to focus on is the word faithful. That's really what this parable is about. The first parable is about perseverance. It's about having a mindset of perseverance. This parable is about faithfulness, faithful stewardship while the master is away. The first two servants were good because they faithfully invested what they'd been trusted with. They reasoned that their master would be back someday, and whenever that was, he's going to want to see a return on this investment. So for these servants, waiting meant it's time to get to work. For the third servant, he was not faithful because he chose to do nothing. Nothing with neither the time nor the investment that he'd been given. He was a bad servant he was a bad servant because he feared his master. Now, let's, let's be honest this morning. My bad stewardship is more often not based on my fear of the master. My bad stewardship is more often based on my neglect of the master altogether. Uh, my friend, John Kerr, who's also a professor out of Ozark, He preached a sermon in our chapel this past week, a great sermon on money and wisdom. And his point, which I think was just a great point, his point was this, that um, our understanding of money is a reflection of our understanding of God. Our understanding of money is a reflection of our understanding of God. So, for instance, if you believe that God is a generous God, If you believe that your creator loves you and will provide for your needs, if your understanding of God is that God is a generous God who has blessed you in many different ways, then the result of that is that you yourself will also be generous in the way that you treat your finances. On the other hand, if your understanding of God is that God is a stingy God, I'm not sure if I could trust God to provide for my needs. I'm going to live and anxiety and worry about whether or not I will receive those blessings from God. If that's your understanding of God, then you also will start to reflect that same stinginess in the way that you treat your money. Or if your understanding is, well, maybe there isn't a God after all. Or if there is a God, maybe he doesn't even care about the way that I handle my finances. If that becomes your understanding of God, then in the, in the long run, what happens is your money becomes your God. And I think that's right. 
I think that's true, but it's not just true about money. It's true about all the many things that God has blessed us with in our lives. Faithfulness means trusting God enough to recognize that the gifts that we've been given were never our own. Instead, we've been given time and blessings and resources, and yes, even money, to invest in a kingdom that will last forever, a kingdom that will never perish, spoil, or fade. As we wait, this is part of the work that we've been given to do, to be good stewards of the blessings that we've received. But ultimately, now hear me on this, ultimately, the most precious treasure that we've been left with by our master has nothing to do with our money or our possessions or even our time. The most precious treasure that we have been left with is the treasure of the gospel itself. The treasure of the gospel message itself, the good news. There will come a time where we will be held accountable. We've been given the greatest message ever told. So the question will be, what in the world did you choose to do with it? Were you content just to go to church week after week, year after year, decade after decade, just to go to church, keeping the gospel kind of safely tucked away, or were you faithful enough that as you were waiting, you were choosing to invest that message in a kingdom that will never perish, spoil, or fade? That leads to the third parable, which isn't really a parable. But Jesus, Jesus warned us in both of these, two, these first two sections about the realities of judgment. The realities of judgment. And judgment, in case you didn't know, judgment is not a very popular thing to talk about. It's not a very fun thing to talk about. Judgment makes us nervous. I think part of the reason that it makes us nervous is that we kind of feel like the world is already full of enough judgmental religious people and we don't want to be counted among them. And yes, that's kind of the point. It's not us, up to us to judge, but that's because that's God's job. God judges. A neutered God who doesn't judge, a God who only seems to exist to make me personally happy, That's a popular God to believe in. And there's even a name for that God in Scripture. The name for that God in Scripture is an idol. Because the living God, the living God is a God who judges. And the third teaching in this chapter makes this explicitly clear. Jesus goes on and says in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Now Jesus knows... That in the first century, when people thought about the Messiah, when people thought about God's Savior, they would oftentimes portray him as this great judge, the Son of Man who would sit in judgment over the nations. Jesus is putting himself in that role here in this teaching. He goes on to say, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats, which is something that shepherds would often do, especially in the evening. They would separate the sheep and the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. 
I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes to clothe and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Then you'll say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and imprisoned, you didn't look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, needing clothes, sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, the traditional, the typical, I should say, understanding of this teaching is that Jesus here is teaching us about charity and about compassion that will be judged, will be judged based on whether or not we have cared for those, especially for those in the greatest need. Now, listen, there's no doubt that following Jesus calls us to unusual levels of compassion. The book of James, James chapter 1, puts it this way. James says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Following Jesus means loving all people with a radical and sacrificial type of love, especially those people who have the greatest need. There's really no doubt about that. But unfortunately, that interpretation of this text is almost certainly wrong. That's not really what, that, what this text is about. And there's two reasons why. The first reason is this word nations. Nations. Now, in the first century when this was written, the word nations was used to apply to all the people of the earth, particularly from a Jewish perspective, it was, it was meant to apply to all the nations who weren't a part of the people of God. And so Jesus in this teaching says, all the nations will be gathered in front of me and the nations will be judged. So this isn't a text just about the church. This is a text about the nations. The second thing that I want you to focus on is Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, if you do a study on brothers and sisters in the book of Matthew, here's what you'll discover. Jesus uses the term brothers and sisters to refer to those specifically who are following him and doing the Father's will. In Matthew chapter 12, for instance, Jesus says, who are, who, who's my mother and who's my brothers and sisters? It's those who do the will of God. That's my family. That's my family. And so here's, here's really the point of what Jesus is saying. A couple chapters later, very end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives what we call the Great Commission. He says, I'm going away, but I've got a job for you. He says, I want you to go into all the world, and I want you to make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them, telling them the good news. This is the job that I've given you to do, to go into all the world and make more disciples. That's your commission. And and so what he says in this chapter then, Matthew 25, is that the nations, 
the nations will be judged according to how they respond to my people. If they mistreat you, my brothers and sisters, they're also mistreating me. If they love and care for you, brothers and sisters, they're loving and caring for me as well. This isn't a teaching designed to guilt or to shame his followers. This is a teaching designed to encourage them. I'm sending you out into the world, but take heart. I am with you until the very end of the age, and the nations will be judged based on how they respond to you and how they respond to me through you. I've got your back, is what Jesus is saying. So ultimately, what is this chapter about? What is Matthew 25 about? I think it's about at least three things. So that was the longest introduction in history. Um, Don't worry, I'll be quick. Here's the first thing that this chapter is about. First, it's about this idea that we we will all be accountable and judgment awaits everyone. Matthew 25 is a rebuttal to the practical atheism of the modern world where we conduct our lives with the assumption that the master will never return home. But that's the second point. The second point is that our king will return. Jesus is coming back. And listen, friends, that's good news. That's good news for those who love him. But it also means that in the meantime, we've got work to do, and that's the third point. The third point is that we wait with perseverance and also with faithful stewardship until he returns. Now, I know we hate to wait, especially when we look at the state of this world and we look at the brokenness and the sin, the fractured families, the fractured lives. And we can't help but say, Lord God, won't you come and fix this? Fix this mess. And so we get impatient with the waiting, but maybe, maybe what our waiting means is that in the meantime, Christ has left his people with work to do. So the question is, will we be about that work? Um, Over spring break, had the opportunity to... um, uh, went on vacation to eastern Tennessee, went camping in the Smoky Mountains. And um, I'm a really good parent because I've managed to brainwash my children into believing that camping and hiking makes for a good vacation. Um, nothing like a forced march through the woods to say, are we enjoying family time together yet? Um, no, we love it. We love it. Um, we were on this particular hike um, during that week, and it, it, was, it, was, it was kind of a tough hike, pretty steep, kind of rocky. And uh, my kids were doing great. They weren't complaining, at least not too much. Um, but eventually, every once in a while, I, we'd have to stop. Because, you know, if you're just looking down the entire time, if you're just looking down, trying to avoid tripping and falling... It's easy to lose heart. It's easy to get worn out. It's easy to start fighting with each other because this doesn't feel like much fun. Every once in a while, you just have to stop and you have to look around. You have to look at the, at the beautiful mountains. You have to re- remember to breathe in the fresh air. 
You have to remember just to take in the glory of what God has made in his creation. It's in those moments of looking up where you, where you you receive that inspiration to continue on. And that's really what this chapter is about. This chapter is telling us, church, we need to look up. We need to not forget to look up so that we can persevere in our waiting. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, and I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis says, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. Look up, friends. Look up. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.